folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective here in Sedona, Arizona. We'll be talking about criminal justice today, and we have Hava Derby sitting next to me across the way, and Gary Lamaster on uh, telephone. From from frigid uh, Minnesota, where it's uh, below zero. Yeah, did... um, our colleague uh, Klaus is in uh, in very uh, desperate situation. Did you want to say something about him? I've never seen a person come into a show or a program or a organization and do more good quicker than than Klaus did, Gary. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, there are a few people that have Klaus's uh, dedication and, and, and energy. Um, it, I was gonna gonna ask you, Steve. It, it uh, how do you pronounce Klaus's last name again? <laughs> well, it's a running joke that you know when you do a running joke with mis- mispronouncing his name, then you lose the track of how to pronounce <laughs> it correctly. But it's von Stutterheim. Von Stutterheim. Stutterheim. You can't you can't you can't do it too Germanically, or it sounds like uh, um, one of those anti-German. Movies from World War Two, you know, <laughs> so, sounds like a curse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you push it too far, it's like, uh, well, you know, Lynn Klaus was like, uh, you sound like some, you know, uh, but but that's that's what it is. And um, we did a whole show. I did a whole interview just with Klaus, and um, gosh, he has an interesting has had an interesting light. Um, He's down in the hospital in uh, at the Mayo Clinic. Um, Gary, did you want to say more or? Yeah, I just uh, uh, I wanted to say that what an impact he had on the show uh, has had on the show, and and I know uh, Klaus has uh, done wonders for uh, for uh, the Democratic Party in in Montana, and he's helped a lot with uh, with Dora and Sedona as well. Um, we met so, him. Let's, let's hope him the let's, let's wish him the best. Yeah. We wish him the best. We met him when uh, I got this email from a, a guy named Klaus Van Studerheim who wanted to come to uh, our one of our fundraisers maybe five years ago, and I thought somebody's playing a joke on us, you know, with that name, you know, just out of the blue, Klaus Van Studerheim, and that's how we met him. And he came to the one of those big dinners we had down at. Um, um, uh, in in Cottonwood, at um, and uh, what he did was in the middle of the fundraiser, he jumped up. He said, "I've got to go feed the horses." <laughs> 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 so he made a really strong first impression, and then became a very important part of uh, of, uh, of democratic perspective. I guess we have to take um, a minute. I've been kind of hesitating to do it, to talk about uh, the late Dick Searle. Dick Searle died on uh, January 3rd. He was the treasurer of Democratic Perspective from 2011 until uh, until his death. I can't think of anyone who could have ever done a better job 
I didn't even remember where our bank account was in. I didn't know which post office our our post office box was in. Uh, he had done everything seamlessly and perfectly for all those years. And, um, you know, he'd done all our reporting to the state that we have to do or we the way we structured the show we have to do and, and everything else. Dick was a wonderful person. I met him in 2004. We did the IT stuff here in Sedona for the Curie campaign. And uh, then we started hiking together, and we were hiking partners, camping partners for 10, 12 years until our doggies didn't get along. <laughs> and then, so we had to go our separate hiking way usually. Um, he was a rocket engineer. He worked on the space shuttle. He worked on all the famous time. He was born in the, in the 30s. Um, told me he had heard Hitler on the radio, on the American radio, said that uh, he, he went to Berkeley when Berkeley was really Berkeley, the the place, and, and he was at the generation where they poured into rocketry and uh, scientific exploration of space, and he was a big part of it. And um, his last uh, part of his career was designing um Rockets that could be launched that would that when they got into space would shoot off little tiny atomic bombs and power them off to Mars. <laughs> I always told him I didn't think that was really a good idea, <laughs> but but you know but he had the deep scientific curiosity about everything and he will be deeply missed. Um, I you know I could go on and on, but I think that what Dick would want us to do is to. Go on with the show on criminal justice. And we have Hava and we have Gary here who are experts on criminal justice. And you guys want to start this off about talking about mass incarceration? Well, yeah, um, definitely it's a good dovetail. Um, I mean, gosh, this is such a deep subject. And thank you for calling me an expert. I, I am hardly an expert, but I definitely, you know, I, I, I like to say life kind of, uh, there's, BG and uh, AG and, you know, George Floyd, you know, affected me deeply. And so, but it's only been this last year. And so to, to dive into this subject, and Gary, I'm sure you found the same thing. It's so deep, all of the elements of our prison system and our uh, criminal justice system. So, yeah, Gary and I have been um, down the wormhole. Gary, I, I don't even really know your background on this subject, but you're, you know, we, we definitely have done um, done our homework around this. So, and this is quite a rich subject, isn't it? Absolutely. It, it's, uh, I, I tend to refer to it as the criminal and injustice system. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it is so biased. Uh, you know, I, I've uh, had many, many, uh, contacts with police because uh, uh, my office in downtown Minneapolis uh, in what was considered one of the safest cities in the in the U.S. Um, was broken into almost weekly. And uh, most of my encounters with the police were, were absolutely uh, unsatisfactory. Uh, I had uh, uh, black employees and friends who were, were uh, harassed by the police. I, I Stumbled across uh, uh, without looking for it. Uh, lots of corruption within the uh, within the department. So when uh, the George Floyd thing uh, happened, it uh, was not at all a surprise. There, there were two precincts within the, the city that that were known for uh, being, uh, you know, for a better, lack of a better term, headbangers. 
and uh, they were also exceedingly lazy when it came to investigating any crimes that were committed against uh, uh, black uh, people or people of color. And uh, it uh, it just was was not a surprise when when Floyd was was uh, killed. That was uh, from uh, from cops out of uh, one of the two precincts that uh, were known for their uh, for the racism. Wow. Um, the um, and you know and my my experiences with racism in, in the police. I'm I'm a white guy uh, that uh, you know has owned businesses and run businesses, but uh, I just kept running into to that kind of racism. Uh, from the time I will admit before I even graduated from college. So mm. um, anyway, uh, we we now you know the U.S. Uh, incarcerates more prisoners than any other nation. Uh, oh yeah, uh, as, we have uh, a, what is it? We have twenty five percent of the prison population in the world, with five percent of the population. Yes, we have two point. As of twenty eighteen, we had two point one million prisoners. Yeah, and we had. Uh, the highest percentage of citizens uh, uh, incarcerated uh, uh, in the world, and that was uh, 639 uh, 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 prisoners per 100,000 citizens. You know what's crazy that I found out, Gary, maybe you found this in your research, is that 95% of people in prison never went to trial. All plea bargain. That's a whole yeah. deep rabbit hole we could get into, but yeah. So it's ninety. Think about that, folks. Ninety-seven percent of people in prison never went to trial. So you know, when you were talking about uh, back at the in uh, Minneapolis, George Floyd, and the police department, and and you talk about just get, doing arrests, it's really when we go down and start talking about the prison system. It's all about money. And the cops are, Absolutely. you know, they make arrests. That's kind of all. They're not out to prevent crime. They're they're more of um, there's that that pipeline between the arrests and the, and, the, and the criminal justice system where it's just about profit. And I should say that I, I've known a number of really good, really really good uh, policemen, police officers, um, and uh, uh, the police chief, uh, the former police chief in St. Paul. Minnesota was absolutely wonderful, uh, uh, Chief Finney. And I think one of the things that distinguished uh, his uh, police force over others, there was there was a, a absolute stark contrast between Minneapolis and St. Paul, for example. And and Finney, the difference I believe was Finney chose to hire uh, police officers that were college graduates. Yes. And he would he would uh, uh, basically interrogate them when when uh, he interviewed them, and he was searching for people who wanted to serve the community mm-hmm. that put a priority on service, not on on uh, control. Right, and, and it really showed up in in the in the difference in the way the two cities uh, 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 police departments operated. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, and you say something quite uh, that I've been coming back to. Well, I really am an abolitionist at heart when it comes to the police. And uh, I really would love to see us all, you know, start from scratch in hiring uh, officers. I'd like to see more peace officers, less police officers. I don't want someone that's not somewhat peaceful carrying a gun. So I love that. Uh, I love when chiefs take more of the the, the role in um 
really making sure that the the force is um you know not full of racist uh, <laughs> angry people one of the things that i think tends to happen is that you know following those two precincts i mentioned that there tends to be a few uh officers who really are racist and are are really headbangers and they move up the uh, the chain of command and they teach people underneath them and because those two precincts are, have a, a higher crime statistics, um, they tend to put people in those precincts that that are rookies uh, or that are basically uh, troublemakers as officers. And the culture just evolves over a period of time where, yeah. where it gets worse and worse and worse. That's the word, culture, which I kind of translate into cancer when we look at, I look at, you know, looking at the police department down in Phoenix. It's just kind of a pervasive energy, um, you know, rooted in trauma and, and a lot of ex-military and racism. It's it's really hard to get that out, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the other thing I think we have to talk about is the police federations. Well, I'm in the uh, union. I'm a strong union supporter, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but uh, in many cities, the police federations have have gotten out of control. And Minneapolis is certainly, you know, example A. Um, they uh, it became impossible for the the chiefs. They went through a series of police chiefs trying to clean up the mess and failed because the federation was so strong yeah. that when a, when a chief would fire an officer, they would, it would go up for review by the federation, and the federation would, would force the, the uh, chief to rehire the officer. Yeah, it's happening and down in Phoenix with the Some the of the worst mm-hmm. actors. Yeah. I, I think the, the problem, um, and I lived in New York City and Manhattan for 30 years, there's a lot of street crime. There's a lot of really bad people out there, and um, the and originally before I arrived in New York, they had the Knapp Commission. Uh, if you remember seeing Serpico the movie, I knew guys who knew who knew Serpico, who were in the police department. It was a, it was a hard hard business to reform the police department and it's gone through one series after another and things seem to work and then they turn not to work. I think one of the best things they did in New York was when when I arrived almost all the police from over from the suburbs out on Long Island. Uh they were all white guys who were living out on Long Island and what they did was they made everybody um who wanted to be in the police department with you could get an exception if you had been hired earlier, live in New York City where they experienced the city and knew something about it. So they wouldn't arrive from these very peaceful white suburbs into our violent, heavily mixed up city and not understand what was going on and not being able to tell the good guys from the bad guys. Mm. I mean, that was a problem. Culturally, it didn't even matter, you know, even if they were well-intentioned, which I think many of them were, they didn't understand the city. They couldn't look at minority people um, who were dressed out really as gangsters and tell the real gangsters from the guys who were looking like gangsters so that they wouldn't be preyed upon. Um, They just didn't understand 
the city. And uh, I don't know. We went through a whole bunch of different programs, and uh, they basically you'd have something like a, a squad of uh, guys in in plain clothes, and they would be make all these arrests, and uh, they found out things that. Uh, that the social scientists began to come into it and they looked at the murder rate in the Bronx and they found that arrests of a very small number of people in the gangs ended the murder rate. So it was, it, it was a lot going out on, on the street and not knowing the neighborhood and maybe not being as sympathetic and looking at people who are different color, come from a different race, different part of the entire world. And there you are, you're supposed to figure out what to do. And I think a lot of them made uh, terrible mistakes. The other thing I think is that that you, you do want to – there are people who, who like police work because of the power. And you want to filter out, as you guys were talking about earlier, those folks from from the rest, like people who want to use uh, power, physical power to control things. Um, well, you look over in, in other countries, like Western European countries, and they've got sometimes years of training to be a police officer. And a lot of their training is just de-escalation. So you're going to weed out... You know, when you start making um, training programs, I'm not using the right word, but when you train your officers longer than five months with a few weeks of de-escalation training, uh, that would be helpful, a reform right there. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I think that splitting off, I can't, can't be fun if you're, if you're a police officer to deal with people who are mentally ill all the time, for that to be a huge portion of what you end up doing. Small town like Sedona, it's, you know, people drifting in and out of town and trespassing and so forth. That would seem, Hava, uh, to be the perfect thing to just basically have a social workers, and you sent me some, some videos of what they do in Portland. Oh, Eugene, Oregon, the Cahoots uh, Eugene, yes. uh, yeah, program. Yeah, um, well, definitely, and uh, this will be exciting, and, and hopefully, and I'm going to put this out into the universe, we'll have um, the uh, consulting director from Whitebird who works with Cahoots on the show, hopefully. I'm going to put that out there. Um, so, yes, and they've been working with a group down in Phoenix, and we had Rocky on the show, Jacob Rayford. Uh, he's one of those folks working on the crisis assistance program, which, yes, like you said, diverts uh, cops away from these non-emergency situations, which are all, uh, of, um, often dealing with homelessness, mental illness, uh, mental health crises. Um, so anything that there, there's a victimless crime where there's not, you know, weaponry involved, it just requires some some help, some empathetic, well-trained mental health uh, assistance. So there's a difference, folks, from when somebody going to this kind of situation, you have a really crazy, unpleasant guy, and God knows I saw enough of him in New York, acting out. So he's acting out, he's aggressive, he's nasty, so for whatever it is, it's there's a big difference between somebody, a police officer with a gun trained in command and control, and using command and control to try to get hold of and talk to mentally ill people is exactly the wrong thing to yeah, do. Yeah. And the alternative is to either I don't to me I don't I don't have the uh, uh, preference to know whether it should be police officers trained in in it but uh, it seems like to me that that a social worker arriving with the whole point of their training and de-escalation mm -hmm. 
would be a better way to solve the sorts of crimes at least we have here in Sedona. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and so, yeah, we're going to have a whole show on that, which I love, these policing alternatives. But for today and jumping into the prison system, let's talk about what happens when a cop deals with someone that's mentally ill. They've probably arrest, uh, resisted arrest um, and they get thrown in jail. Gary, I bet you've done some homework on this one. We could even just start with all of the issues around our prison system and just starting with post-arrest cash bail. Um, you know, a lot of we, we've developed this very unconstitutional system of keeping you in in jail, innocent till proven in, uh, guilty, obviously. But you can't afford, you know, obviously mentally uh, incapacitated people um, can't afford their bail. So we have this whole system of keeping people that can't afford to get out. Yeah, I think if you look at the, uh, I, I would encourage everyone to uh, to uh, uh, search online for the uh, report from the, the Department of Justice investigation into the uh, city of uh, Ferguson, Missouri, which I think exemplifies the problem. Um, they, they found that the report found that after uh, Michael Brown was killed, they did this this intensive report and found that the police department violated the first, fourth, and fourteenth amendments of, of the uh, citizens of Ferguson. Uh, a lot of it because the, the city was struggling to uh, to meet its budget uh, requirements, mm. and so they uh, uh, they kept uh, increasing municipal fines and fees each year. Then they pushed the uh, police department into uh, trying to write tickets and make arrests that would deliver that revenue to the to the city. Right. So. Over time, the, the, uh, many of the officers began to see the residents of Ferguson less as uh, constituents than as sources of revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, once those people get arrested and have a substantial fine, in places like Ferguson where the, the incomes are quite low, the, uh, the people are unable to, uh, to pay the fines, so they miss their court dates. Right. And... And when they miss their court dates, they get another fine added to it. And the fines keep totaling up to where it's impossible for them to pay them. The first one was probably impossible. It was a choice between the fine and food. And then they they get arrested, thrown into the system, and and incarcerated uh, until they can... uh, can pay the fines and fees. And so if they are to get out, uh, it uh, depends on, you know, they end up depending on their families and friends to help pay their fines. Yeah, and it uh, So it just them. keeps compounding itself over right. and over and over again. Yep. And I've uh, been reading that there are these systems where a small fine, Gary, let's talk a little bit more about that because I think people don't know about it. A small fine can escalate into a prison sentence, into uh, a monstrous uh, a monstrous fine. I know it's worse in the South maybe than other places, but this whole process of, of a small thing getting magnified and turned into a, a major thing. The issue of incarceration and and a fine that that you know as they say no honest person can come up with that much money. Um, there, in, in essence, that's what happened to George Floyd. If you if you dig into his history, uh, growing up in the projects in Houston, 
um, you know, he uh, had a scholarship for for athletics. Uh, um, went to college. He was a, a, a really good athlete, as both uh, in football and basketball. And uh, he was a very very large man. And uh, when he dropped out of college to help his family, uh, to help support them, uh, he got into uh, some minor drug uh, deals, got arrested, and then sent to uh, what I call criminal finishing school. He was sent to prison, and uh, uh, you know, got, when he got out, he got in even more trouble, and and then he kept trying to break free. He moved to Minneapolis to to try to restart his life, mm-hmm. and and by all accounts was a really good citizen for the most part, and. And when he got COVID and, and, uh, uh, he, he kind of fell back into, uh, to using drugs, that's what led to the incident where he was killed. So these, these people often get targeted early on and, and then we don't have a system to help them rehabilitate or deal with their drug abuse. So they get thrown in prison and, and in prison they are, confronted by a whole lot of violence and no, you know, it's all viewed as in the U.S. as uh, prison is punishment. Uh, and so they emphasize the punishment with no attempts to, to rehabilitate. And so once they serve their, their uh, term, they get back out on the streets. They often are, are way more violent than they, they were when they went in. And, and they have no skills to be able to, to get a decent job. They have a felony record that uh, prevents them from getting jobs. Yeah, and voting. And so it just, mm-hmm. just ends, it ends up being a cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again. Yeah, and and it starts early. You know, we look at some of these um, cities and towns where the juvenile criminal, right, they're, they're starting, you know, really early. Um, and then getting into the system and finding it impossible to get out. Um, one of the things that I, I was looking at with adolescents in the criminal justice system is you have to really look at them developmentally. You know, teenagers, when the crime starts to happen around mid to late teens, you know, their brains are just all, their, their reward systems are just looking for ways to get lit up. And of course, if they're in gangs or in, they're in groups that are um, engaging in risky behavior, they kind of thrive off of that. So they often just get into situations where they have no impulse control, um, you know, no cognitive or uh, no reasoning and um, get into the system. And what we find is that you, along with the mandatory sentencing or maybe three strikes or however long you were making these prolonged sentences for young people. And what you look at when you study the, the, the development of these uh, young people is that eight, mid-teens, late-teens, high crime, mid-20s, it starts to drop off. The brain's completely done developing. You know, there's a little more uh, reasoning going on. And then by about the 30s, early 30s or uh, late 30s, 40s, drops off significantly so to put people in just go all right you're locked up for life it's not really providing an opportunity for just you know men to to normally develop um i would say that it it starts very very early it starts in preschool yeah Mm. Uh, i found some statistics that that uh, black students uh, represent 18 percent of preschool enrollment but 42% of the students who are suspended once, 48% of students suspended more than once. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it starts, they're viewed differently. They can, you know, when they can have the same offense as a white student, but they get their, their offense is viewed more seriously. Yeah. So they're punished more repeatedly and, and more severely. And, you know, it, it uh, just accelerates from there. Um, they found that if, if, uh, if you have a really good preschool and you get people of, of color and white people together in, in preschool uh, and are treated uh, the same, you start to really reduce the disparities of, of uh, the students, the racial disparities as they go along. And they, they, be, they stay better students. They have a higher graduation rate. Um, so it, it really begins at, at a very early age. And, and you also consider, when you look at the black community, one in five, one in four children will have a parent or both incarcerated in their lifetime. So you're looking at the the family is you know trapped in the system as well. And yeah, go ahead, Steve. That's a that's a good point. I was just going to say the one of the things I I I saw I think with, with a little bit with my own eyes anyway is that that this incarceration and putting everyone in in jail um you have a call steve is that me yeah i do <laughs> i'll answer it later <laughs> they're supposed to call me in in when the show's over gary <laughs> i'm sitting here without my teeth you know life is uh, is, is is hard and uh, and uh, and embarrassing you know and but we just got to to give that up. Um, yeah, I, I saw that. I mean, the, the destructiveness of the um, incarceration of one member of the family means the whole family structure is is, is weakened. So if the father is off in jail all this time. You know, particularly young boys, at some point, it's very hard for women to ma- to um, manage them and train and often them. Often for nonviolent crimes, or yeah. probably can't pay their bail. I mean, and we're, we're not talking about a lot of hardened criminals here. Yeah, I lived in a high crime area with lots of drug dealing all over the yep. place. The truth is, some of those drug dealers are pretty decent kids. Mm-hmm. They're really not that bad. They're just in the system. Look, you're in the in the ghetto, and I lived next to it basically. There's not a lot of ways to get rich, and I mean, there's there's the the sports uh, and um, goal, and and the kids try to do that, and it works. Well, also too, when you think about putting somebody in jail for drug offenses, guess what? There's going to be people out on the street filling that hole. So it's not like jailing people's taking care of the the drug problem. No, it doesn't. It doesn't work, and it. It flattens out. It creates um, some pretty nice kids, like some some really violent bad apples. There, when you're in a uh, live in a sort of heavy crime neighborhood, everybody's in kind of a defensive mode. You really have to look at people to see who they are, and that was the thing I I, I noticed. The police couldn't tell who was who. You know, um, the other thing is poverty, right? It all there's always more crime in poor neighborhoods. Now, um, if you if you're raised in the neighborhood that were north of where I lived, um, there's not a lot of uh, opportunity, or the opportunities are, um, 
you know, very unromantic and stuff. And so the temptation to sell drugs is really great because that's a way out of the situation. Also, the other kind of crime I saw, the um, a woman above this who taught at John Jay Criminal Justice College came home one day and her door was open. So this is a, a brownstone, classic New York brownstone, Upper West Side. Some guy, I assume it's a guy, hung on the on the uh, on the um, parapet on the on the uh, on the on the stone and dropped down on her window sill, pushed the window open and went running down the stairs. The amount of courage, you know, and uh, and uh, expertise and uh, and physical skill required to do this and not get yourself killed is amazing. So you, you looked at that and said, "Why isn't this guy in the army? You know, why isn't he an army ranger? Why why is he why is he breaking into a, a woman who still has a black and white TV's house?" Um, so there, what you see is this amazing amount of talent and skill and physical courage all being thrown the wrong way. Uh, at least that was that was my impression of it. Um, you see these I, talented I would, kids. Would, yeah, go ahead, Gary. I, I would add that, you know, when I graduated from college, I, I moved into a, a black neighborhood because it was within walking distance of my job. And I had utterly no problems with any of my neighbors except for one was a white cop who was was constantly trying to to create issues and uh, then blame it on on others in the in the neighborhood and and I would submit being you know an amateur psychologist I actually have some training in it that um, you you react to how you're you're treated and our systemic racism ends up Causing you know people of color to be treated very differently than than white people, the drug use uh, from one race to another is essentially the same, yep. but there's much more focus on on drug use in black uh, communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're treated, I, I went through this as a as a in high school. I I was growing up in a small town and uh, near a small town and. And I was always considered one of the, you know, a good student and one of the good kids in town. And then I started hanging out with a, a, a guy who was brilliant and a, a little bit older than me, but um, he was a prankster, so he was known as one of the bad kids in town. And suddenly I was treated as one of the bad kids just because he was my friend. Mm. So I decided, if you're going to treat me that way, fine. So I did the same kinds of things that, that my friend did, right. and uh, pretty soon I was living up to my reputation. And I think that expands and extends, you know, over uh, uh, a period of time over people's lives. Where if you're treated as as somebody who is suspicious, you start to act like yeah, it, exactly. and you and you exactly. start to mm-hmm. resort to to. Uh, uh, gangs and, and places uh, where people give you respect for who you are. Right, and light up those reward centers like we talked about in a, in a developing brain, you know, just that sense of wanting to belong and, and then a, a brain that's just wanting to t- take risks. Um, yeah, well said. And, and, you know, when you were talking a little earlier, Gary, about um, neighborhoods 
and the the role of of cops, how they deal with um, black and white people. We really, you know, gosh, it's we've only got another ten minutes here on the show. This is such a deep subject, and you know, we haven't even really gotten into the beginnings of our prison system. And you have to go back and look all the way back into the end of the Civil War and the start of, of Reconstruction and a, a, a southern economy in absolute tatters and no, lo- no more slaves to, um, you know, help the economy and rebuild their economy. And so, you know, we've got the good old 13th Amendment with the clause in it that says, yes, all humans are free except under the condition of imprisonment. Of course, I'm paraphrasing wildly. But so we put this little clause in that um, we just we didn't get away with slavery or do away with slavery. We just changed the ways we can get away with it. So when you look at that as the basis of, of our prison system, you get back to money. You get back to, um, to, to a racist system, just one more racist system. And the prison system really changed in the 80s when... When uh, you had in oh, the 70s, Reagan. you had mm-hmm. Nixon talking about law and order. And right, the proverbial law and order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you law had uh, Republicans in general pushing law and order and, and forcing Democrats to, to uh, respond. Uh, the prison systems went from, you know, uh, places of rehabilitation where they had libraries and where where prisoners could uh, could learn, they had uh, uh, education programs, they had their degrees, various yeah. train, training programs. They they could get a college degree, mm-hmm. they could become a carpenter, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they had uh, workout, you know, exercise rooms. All of that went away because why are we treating these prisoners? They broke the law. Why are we treating them better than we're treating you know people right. outside the yeah. prison system? Yeah. And so it. it turned into a, a, a system of revenge. Yeah, you know, it, it's, yeah. uh, we're going to seek revenge on anyone who breaks the law or we consider having broken the law. Mm-hmm. And we're going to punish them and continue to punish them throughout their lives. They can't, in many states, can't vote. It's very difficult to get a job. It, it, it just continues, and, and we really need to get back to some form of, of uh, rehabilitation and, and help people who have mental problems and who have uh, addiction problems. Yeah, we've got to keep them out of the system to begin with. So, again, back to these policing alternatives where we keep people out of jails. And I think it's important to – I think that you're, you're both correct. That it's important that uh, people not be defined as being a criminal and if you have a young kid and he's sold drugs and he gets caught and he fights with the police and resists arrest, doesn't mean he's necessarily a really, truly a hardcore guy. He could be just a kid who gets caught up in the system who's imitating everybody else. And what you saw in New York was gangster guys who are dressed like gangster guys and then guys who dress like gangster guys because they don't want to be preyed upon. I mean – these extremely poor neighborhoods are difficult places to live unless you unless you learn how to live in them. So what I see was really talented kids everywhere in New York, but being drawn into the system of, of dealing drugs and then not being allowed to exit it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the criminal system didn't allow them to exit it, and it treated them all like. 
they were very much worse than the white kids taking drugs. Mm-hmm. And maybe they were dealing them and the white kids were buying them. But yeah. uh, it, it that that labeling, I thought, was really strong. I saw so much talent. And uh, the, when they began to have some good schools in Harlem, for example, um, they really had good results. Um you know, it's, it's not every kid's going to make it out of it. Uh, it. It was a horrible system in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, guy I worked with, um, Puerto Rican, Lower East Side, went off to a Quaker school. He was a baseball star, and they sent him off to for one private school to another. He made it out of the out of the situation. He told me he came back to New York to take a semester off. And two or three of his friends were already dead. Uh, Others were already in jail. The yeah, massive. Look look at uh, white collar crime versus other crimes too. Is that we have we have decided to basically not punish you know people that that steal money in the in the uh, in the hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. We we give them. kind of a pass, and uh, oftentimes they have uh, political uh, supporters. Uh, you know, uh, I would refer to Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and, and others that get off with some really serious, serious crimes against our democracy and, and stealing huge amounts of money. And, and they get treated either to pardons or... or to uh, you know, minimum security, like, you know, luxurious yeah, prisons. Yeah, exactly. And somebody who who uh, you know, like George Floyd, was accused of trying to pass a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. Yeah. And look what happened to him. Yeah. Well, Gary, you were going on a, a really. We look at the increase of prison populations, and uh, you know, we've only got a few minutes here. Gosh, we really we, we're gonna. Steve, I'm going to actually interrupt myself here and say that we're going to be talking to the sheriff soon. We've still we've still got some episodes on this dealing with the mental illness. Um, we, we have several episodes coming yeah. up. I, we're going to I think we're going to be talking with Sasha Bromsky about. He's written some wonderful books about the effect of poverty, and I'm not sure. I haven't talked to Sasha yet. So I'm not sure exactly what take we're going to, but it's either criminal justice or criminal justice and and poverty, how they interact, Mm -hmm. something like that. We have a a show with the sheriff, I think it's March 1st, and um, they're trying to build a a redirection program for for the mentally ill. Yeah, it's amazing what uh, what Yavapai uh, County Sheriff David uh, Rhodes has um, really put his focus on. It's um, yeah, it's it's wonderful. So I'm I'm excited we get to continue the subject because gosh, you've only got like one minute and we didn't even barely scratch the surface. Uh, Forty five minutes goes fast. It does. It does. Uh, I, I'm glad you folks to turned in. Um, give a shout out again for for a cause Van Studerheim. And um, our thanks to Dick. I guess we never yeah. really thanked him properly. It just everything happened so quick. So uh, we, you know we've as- assumed some losses, and so when that happens, then you have to think about you know nature of, of life and stuff. We've got one minute left, so we've got a whole series. We're continuing the series on criminal justice, and we're not taking one point of view. We're letting everybody pretty much say exactly what they think. I always disagree with Gary, so... 
<laughs> well, and Door, you want to give a shout out to Door today? Yeah, uh, Door Auction is continuing until the 10th. Uh, they have a lot of wonderful stuff being auctioned, um, uh, massages and, I don't know, hot stone therapies and art and everything else. Lots of good it's stuff. quite a good program. Mm-hmm. I think their um, film series is continuing, too. We need to shout out to to El Portal, mm-hmm. wonderful dog-friendly hotel. I mean, if you have a dog, uh, this is a place to go. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.